Welcome, welcome, welcome. Episode 12 of Traps Lodge, y'all. This episode, we go way back to Trapper's childhood, growing up with his dad and brother and two sisters in the hill country, and it gets crazy. Some of the stories, I didn't believe at first, (laughs) but they're all true. Trapper shares his childhood. This is part one. There will be probably a part two and maybe even a part three, depending on how in-depth we get about everything. But thanks for joining us again this week. Stick around for the ending and make sure you hear all about the coon dog and the coon story. So enjoy. I like that song. Welcome back, everybody, to Traps Lodge, episode number 12. Hey, guys, lucky number 12, 12th man. Whoop. (laughs) Wife's an Aggie. Whole family is an Aggie. Well, I'm not an Aggie. You're an Aggie by association. Not guilty by association. Mm, just wait till we get you to that game in a couple weeks. You're mm. gonna love it. So today we have a real treat for you. We are going to talk about Trapper's life. <laughs> Sit down, get a six pack, and get comfy. And I'm gonna try not to mess this one up. <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to kind of recap from basically your whole life story, starting with when you were younger. So uh, dates and all that might be a little fuzzy, but we'll get the general storyline. And there's a a reason behind it. A lot of people just tend to ask me, like, how did I get started in this industry and why am I in this industry and what's the background and the the backstory to everything. And I've been requested by a couple of people just to, like, kind of, lay it all out there so they can grasp it if that makes sense yeah because some of the stuff you you talk about and say is wild yeah i mean what i thought was a normal childhood turns out it was uh quite the adventure as a child yes lions and tigers and bears oh my (laughs) something like that yeah okay so give us a little backstory about uh your parents and your grandfather, I know you were close to, and great-grandfather, and there's quite kind of a history there in uh, politics in the Hill Country area, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, not to get into great detail about it, but my great-grandfather on my grandmother's side, he founded Comfort. He was a Schwethelm. She was born in Comfort, Texas. Um, my family's got deep roots in Texas, my granddad was born in 1910 in Liberty, Texas, Joseph Washington Burkett Jr. He was a state, what did you tell me? State representative? Yes, yeah, House of Representatives. House of Representatives. I have a great-grandfather that was a state senator and a great-uncle that was also either a senator or something like that. So big, big roots in Texas. The Burkett Pecan was invented by my great-grandfather on, my, on the Burkett side. My my father is a veterinarian by, by profession, but got into the exotic industry, um, and his story is way greater than mine, and I've, I feel like I've always been trying to catch up to him, because he's, he's lived quite the life, and it hasn't been an easy one either, especially with me in it, but uh, so he, so my granddad... Uh, Joe Washington Burkett Jr. represented the Shriner family that owned the Wyo in Mountain Home, Texas. 
for many, many years. So my granddad was out there all the time and took my dad with him. And you mean representative like his law office? He, yes. Right? Yeah. He sorry. He was, he, he was a lawyer. Sorry. Yes. He was a lawyer in Kerrville. And at one point I think he was a judge and he was their estate planner and, and their attorney. And that's how my dad got into the exotic industry. He went to Texas A&M. He's been in the Peace Corps, went to Ecuador for two years. Before that, he rodeoed professionally. He's, I'm not really sure how he fit it all in. And ended up in El Paso uh, during Vietnam. He was a veterinarian at Fort Bliss. And somehow there met my mom. Uh, he was previously married, and I have a half-brother and a half-sister. My oldest half-brother served in the military. He was a military sniper and used to beat me up a lot when I was a kid, taught me how to box, taught me how to fight, which probably wasn't a good thing. And um, so, There's yeah. Chief. Chief shaking back there. Anyway, long story short, he moved back from El Paso and back to the ranch and started working in the exotic industry as an exotic capture specialist. And there was only a, a handful of guys back then that, that – that did that and so I grew up um, with the passion of my dad capturing and moving animals and hunting and my dad actually hunted Kenya in Africa in 1968 and 69 they shut Kenya down in 1970 he caught or hunted with the guy that John Wayne played in Hatari Sean Mercer and learned some capture technique techniques from Sean Mercer so that's a highlight of his kind of just some touching on his story. That's pretty cool. So there might be some people listening because I know um, when I first met you, I was vaguely familiar with the capture industry, but kind of what is it? What's the purpose? Why do people need to capture? I mean, kind of give everyone a small intro to that. It's, I would say it's another form of conservation like hunting is. So overpopulated herds or ranches selling or whatever, we go in and catch surplus and then, take the surplus and re and start another herd on another ranch so it's a big industry and then there's the the trophy side of that too you know trophy hunting ranches needing you know young bucks to grow out or surplus animals to hunt etc etc so as the populations in texas have grown there's been a need for the selling of surplus because it's it's not like a cattle market where you just take it to like a slaughterhouse they take it and put it on other ranches to keep populating and and keep building sustainable huntable herds right i mean i guess if you move here and buy a ranch and you want to get in the exotic industry right you've got to get exotics from somewhere (laughs) it's happening a lot now and there used to be quite a few auction barns uh, that they would run exotics through the internet's kind of taken a front seat to that and the exotic barns have taken a back seat Raz Livestock Auction still operates in Harper, Texas. Uh, the Huntsville Livestock Auction operates in Huntsville. Tommy Oates is a, is a good guy over there, and he's uh, big into EWA and big supporter there. But I think I'm, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Well, I wanted everyone to have a, a groundwork for what the capture industry is. Right. Because yeah. you said your dad does capture work. What does that mean? Yeah. So, um, all right. So he gets involved with that. Mm-hmm. goes to Kenya that's a really cool story I actually have only seen that movie once Atari because you made me watch it I'm gonna make you watch it again and I love John Wayne so I can't believe I hadn't seen it but I can watch anything John Wayne you put it on I'll watch it right <laughs> okay so he's doing that so what does that mean for you as a kid are you getting to go on capture jobs that are <laughs> you know like in Texas or, let's, or what's let's, your childhood let's back up a little bit um 
I was born in 1979 in Kerrville, Texas. And my grandmother, grandmother, grandfather, grandmother lived in Kerrville, Texas. Their ranch was between Kerrville and Fredericksburg at Morris Ranch. My dad um, moved there with my mother and my two older sisters. And then my brother and I were both born in the Hill Country. My sisters were born in El Paso. He was stationed in Fort Bliss. And then moving forward from that, I was totally ingrained and engulfed in hunting and capture from birth. And my sisters told me I, I came out of the womb mad, that I was mad at the world and I was mean, and sounds about right. <laughs> just angry all the time. And uh, I grew up tough. I grew up really. Uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a uh, childhood that that left me wanting or needing for anything. I had everything I wanted or needed. We had food on the table. I lost my mom when I was two years old. I, I don't recollect her at all. I have very, very vague memories of her, and it's usually from photographs I've seen. She was world champion barrel racer in 1969, 1968, something like that. She's in the Rodeo Cowgirl Hall of Fame. And I don't know the whole story, how she met my dad. She died of brain cancer when I was two. My sister Jane was eight. And pretty much took over raising the other th- other three of us, Judy, and then Hunter, and then I. I was the youngest at the time. Yeah, she definitely had to grow up fast, it sounds like. Yep. So we lived in a little house on, on Morris Ranch. And it- tell us, not to interrupt you, but I love the history of Morris Ranch. Tell us just a real okay, brief sidetrack a little bit. So well, then- there's so many. Pl- I feel like you're glossing over so many things. And okay. I mean, we're not okay. going anywhere. I'm not in a hurry. They've got a six pack. I mean, right. <laughs> okay. So it. Morris Ranch was developed by the Morris family that came from England. And they're a horse racing community family. They settled at Morris Ranches at on the Perdinalis and Spring Creek. So Perdinalis River and the Spring Creek where they joined. And they found out that the water there had an ample amounts of lime in it that they could run those colts at a younger age rather than two years old. They could run them at like a year and a half or 18 months. And the history is still there. It's an English architecture. There's uh, the old, I showed you the old hotel and, and I showed you the old um, schoolhouse and church. And then we grew up, my dad rebuilt the jockey house is what they call it. And when I was a child, he was remortaring it and rebuilding it with him and a couple other hands and rewiring the whole thing. And growing up in that house was something to be just in awe. On on our staircase going up to the second story on a wooden wall, there was uh, the measurements and names of the jockeys. And then there was a cook that was like six and a half or seven feet tall. And all the jockeys' names were, you know, they're little tiny guys. So the Morris, Morris family, they still own a racetrack in England, and I believe they still own one in New York. And they actually started what the King Ranch lays to claim that they found the quarter horse or bred the quarter horse is wrong. It was bred at Morris Ranch. And we had the sale docket in that old jockey house, and 95% of the horses that were bought were bought by the King Ranch. And they were quarter horses and thoroughbreds all bred right there at Morris Ranch. They originally settled there eighteen late 1800s. Um, the house we grew up in, the Big Rock House, was originally built in 1892. That's crazy. I know. I just, um, I was Googling Morris Ranch, and I didn't realize it's, people say it's a ghost town now. Oh, everybody used to think that that 
well, they call it the old hotel. It's actually the old post office and general store. They call it haunted, but uh, that's because my brother and I used to haunt it, if you want to hear that story. Yeah, it says the Morris Ranch Hotel that served as a post office and general store. And then I thought it was really cool, the uh, stud barn. It was two stories. Mm-hmm. The two-story stud barn, and they would have draft horses pull the elevator up and pull the studs to the second floor. And a lot of uh, it employed a lot of people building that ranch from Fredericksburg. It's about nine miles towards Kerbo out of Fredericksburg, off off the back roads. And um, when the, what we call the racetrack pa- pasture, it's overgrown with mesquites now. But when that used to get plowed when I was a kid, you could see it's a black uh, clay field, and they you could see the racetrack where they brought in the sand up, the sand up from the river to to make the racetrack. Wow, that's awesome. Okay. So that's where you grew up. I, I want, I really want people to like know, like, cause you're real big into history and preserving things mm-hmm. and, and you're kind of, as people will learn as they listen to this podcast and the, the next episodes that tell later in life and stuff, I think they're going to learn that you're kind of a very unique breed in your passion and like, uh, closeness to wilderness, I guess, and animals mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that, that lends to, I think, your childhood and your cultural richness and just everything. So, okay, you can, oh, <laughs> we can segue back to what you were talking about. So our house is, oh, I think it's about a mile off the Pernalis River. And whenever we weren't working, my brother and I would sneak away and, and go fishing. And I remember, well, I don't remember, but my dad's told me and my sister's told me when I was four, when they were working on that house, that he had some marking stays around there and one story when I tell you I grew up tough um this was probably the start of that and we all grew up tough I mean Hunter got stitches he got caught in a live uh you know a live trap or a trap that my dad was trying to trap coons with and Judy slipped off of something cut her head open he's a veterinarian so he just stitched us all up all the time we all each have our own scars and our own stories from our childhood but we we didn't make it to the hospital and anyway I fell on a marking stay uh, which is just about two inch wide by maybe half inch thick um, pine stay with you know flagging strip on it, and I don't know if my brother pushed me or I just fell or whatever. Anyway, it split on my teeth, and it went up through my cheek on the outside of my jaw, and then up through the roof of my mouth. And my dad got home that evening, and I think we had a babysitter or something, as the story goes, and. She was holding me, and my dad walks in immediately, and he said, what's wrong with Trapper? And she's like, oh, there's nothing wrong. And he could tell I was in, in shock. You know, I was four years old, and I was just in a, a ton of pain. I wasn't even crying. I was just, he was, I was literally in shock, and I was cold to the touch, my dad said. And so he rushed and grabbed the kids, and they threw me down on the kitchen table, and he had Judy, Jane, and Hunter hold me down, and I was too small or whatever for a whole lot of anesthetics or pain anything and he pulled all the splinters and pine out of my mouth and put over 70 stitches in the roof of my mouth and I still I can still feel those scars with my tongue in the roof of my mouth and it still hurts from now from time to time and it stunted the the growth plate in the roof of my mouth that's why the my front teeth are crowded and I have crooked teeth and I went to get them fixed one time and it sounded like it was going to be a lot more trouble than I wanted to go through so I, that's where my crooked teeth come from. 
I hope that babysitter didn't get to come back. I think she ended up marrying my dad, and then they got divorced later on. A trapper. That is not true. <laughs> it is true. My mom was passed away, so. Um, you know, most of the time when people think of babysitters, at least I do, you think of, like, teenagers. Oh, That's why when she you said that, I was like, She what? wasn't that young. Her brother was working for my dad. That was my first step monster. So going back to um, your childhood with your dad and captures and stuff you, you got to go along with them you had- so the first time I got my dad darted this fallow buck that he'd been after for a while and it was very elusive and this is where my passion for fallow comes from obviously right so he darted with uh Secostrin, which is a paralyzing agent suctional choline chloride they use it in surgery in hospitals but anyway I was holding his head up and the other kids were there and we were out in the pasture. I think I was five or six. Uh, I don't know the age, but small. Anyway, I was holding his antlers up and watching his breathing and everything. My dad was talking me through, and he kind of turned his back, and the deer was kind of playing possum. Well, all of a sudden, he leapt to his feet, and I'm latched around his neck and just holding on and just not letting go. And the buck fell down and got back up and fell down and got back up and fell. Of course, by then my dad ran over there and grabbed him and tied him down or whatever happened. And I was covered in fire ants and cactus and bruises and it's nose, like your, nose bleeding. And your version of the what do they do at the rodeo where the kids ride the sheep? Right. The mutton busting. Yeah, mutton <laughs> busting. Trapper Burkett version. Right. With a, a big fallow buck and, you know, nose bleeding and you know thorns and everything in me and my dad reaches in his pocket and he gives me ten dollars i was like i was sold <laughs> i was like man that was the easiest 10 bucks i ever had ever made right there and, oh my goodness and so from then on it was it was funny you know being at uh when my mom passed away she asked that we go to a private school which was saint mary's was the only school in Fredericksburg, that was a private school. I mean, we're not Catholic. Nothing against Catholics. But we're not Catholic. But that's that was her request. And so my dad made sure that's where we went. But I remember being in grade school and, like, you just hear this rattling of this truck and trailer rolling up to school. And you just start gathering your books and putting them in your backpack. And the teacher would be like, where do you think you're going? I'm like, well, my dad's about to sign me out. we got to go to work. And it didn't matter what day of the week it was. We just would jump in the pickup and off we go. Time to go to work. That's definitely uh, different times, right? Different times, yeah. <laughs> I do remember when my sister and I were growing up, um, we loved to, my dad loves to travel. And so my mom and dad were always going places. And a lot of the times it was for business. But we were in, I think, elementary school. And they would tell the teachers, like, hey, we're going here. And my dad's a big history buff, which is, I think, where I get it from. Mm. And the teachers would be like, take them. They're going to learn more. I mean, you know, just Mm -hmm. traveling and seeing places and going to like national forest and museums. And I remember we always had to come back though. And my dad one time had to do a presentation. Uh Um, We went to Mesa Verde, the Mesa Verde cliff dwellings. And dad came back and he brought like the video that plays, you know, in Mm -hmm. the like entryway or whatever with the goats. I don't know. It was really cool. But Uh, my uncle, my dad's brother died, um, Raiding cliff dwellings or exploring, I should say exploring, cliff dwellings. He crashed his plane somewhere in New Mexico or Arizona, and my dad had to go pack his uh, younger brother out that was deceased. So my dad had that to deal with, too. 
crazy. So, okay, we've definitely, we've heard a little bit about the capture side of things a little bit, right? As far as your entrance yeah, into that world. Um, but talk a little bit about what other animals you had living at your house. Um, hmm. So my dad doesn't do anything like a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Does everything like a lot of bit. <laughs> Uh, he started raising big cats, African lions, tigers, jaguars, leopards, mountain lions, lynx, bobcats, a few bears. We were living in a big house at that time. He built a bunch of aviaries and pens and stuff like that. And, it, and I think from about the time we moved in the big house, which was I think I was probably six or seven years old by then, maybe a little older. I don't remember exactly. My sisters would probably remember. But we had everything from llamas and peacocks and ducks and geese to, you know, macaws to, at one time we had an elephant and all these cats. And we had all these different types of African antelope um, that he was getting from zoo zoo surplus. Blue wildebeest, black wildebeest, eland, kudu, bongo, inyala, audad, axis, fallow. Black Buck, like you name it, we've raised it. Simmer to Horn Oryx, Addicts, Gimsbok, Beast Oryx, Fringed Oryx, Arabian Oryx. I'm still stuck on the elephant. Did you really have an elephant? We had an elephant. Hmm. Not for very long because he ate a lot, but we had an elephant. We had chimpanzees. We had baboons. We had... And what was his purpose in getting... He just liked all these animals or was he reselling them or what was he doing? He He was breeding them and raising them. He's the best at that. He's the very best at taking care of these animals. And a lot of these animals were particular to where they would, like a lot of the cats wouldn't breed in captivity in a zoo type setting because of all the foot traffic and they were just out of their element. So he got a lot of cats on breeding loan and would breed them in the facilities and he would give the cubs back to the zoos or disperse the cubs between in the zoos, zoo programs. A lot of Cubs went back to South Africa on another program, uh, Afri- the African Black Main Lion, which is one, one t- at one time been extinct in South Africa. My dad reintroduced that those cats to South Africa. And I was able to go there when I went to Africa for the first or second time and, and see those cubs that we had ball raised. And it was a really amazing moment of what my dad had done as a conservationist and as a just love for animals and being able to, to breed and raise that wildlife and reintroduce it into the wild. And he raised black jaguars and black leopards. And I remember getting the cubs off the mothers and bottle raising all kinds of things in the house at one time. I mean, it was just, it was insane to even go back and think about and to cleaning out the lion cages and almost getting eaten by a lion multiple times and, I thought it was normal. I thought it was what we were supposed to do. Isn't there a movie about a kid that like lives in a zoo? I feel like there's a movie about your life. So what, um, at like at one time, what's like probably the most amount of animals you had? I, I'd hate to put a number on it. My dad would definitely know he's a numbers guy, but we had 80 big cats at one time, 80 to a hundred. What? Um, so if you, what does the, the housing look like for that? Oh, like, was, are they just in these beautiful. pens no, or what? No, he had beautiful atriaries and, and like for the leopards, we built this, this 
um, sorry for the tigers we built this big pond where they could swim in it and i mean he did it right it was beautiful and the, they weren't cramped and we had lions in like the open pasture like in five and ten acre camps and like he had a pride of lions and he had two big males named holland and holland big african black mane males and he had like six or eight females with them and people would bring us their you know their dying or dead cows or dead horses and we had permits to pick up roadkill and they got fed really well and they were my dad does not race anything poorly but so other than his kids so <laughs> that's not true y'all all turned out wonderful um i might have taken you to the doctor to get your mouth sewn up but that's okay um so no top on the no, five acre no yeah acre. We had eight foot chain link fence we had some lionesses get out one time and they got under the neighbor's sheep but they my dad paid for all the sheep but put them back in the cage yeah. and then That's there was so a leopard crazy. a pet leopard that got out one time and was in a little old lady's carport and all the sheriffs were running around trying to find it and they they found it and i had all their pistols drawn and my dad drove up and was like whoa 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 and I reached up there and grabbed him and pulled him into the truck by the scruff of his neck because he was like, he rode around in the truck like my dad's dog. So. And I know this is going back to the beginning, but your grandfather and great grandfather weren't really involved in raising animals. No. Right? So this is your dad's passion that he just kind of discovered. And being a veterinarian and being so good at what he does. And he's actually still a working veterinarian for Texas Animal Health Commission. He's very brilliant, a very eccentric man. Um, and we've had our differences and we've had our arguments and fallen outs. But what I've learned from just being in his life has made me who I am. And then the hunting side to that is just a whole other side. Yeah. So, um, what did your so when you when you pull up to your house paint like an image for everybody is there um are the when you pull up to your house does it look like a normal house and then everything's in the back or can you like see all this as you're so for example you know like you do field trips to the san antonio zoo Mm -hmm. our school took field trips to my house oh mine too except all we had was chickens and zebras (laughs) oh well mine was a little bit zebras are not that I don't know. Anyways, yeah, we definitely didn't have a cheap head. We're not comparing houses here, but yeah. No, that's crazy though. Um, so how old were you when this stopped? Like when the breeding stopped? And don't like I'm just an age because I know there's a whole story behind it. But how long did he do this for? I guess. I mean, like ten years. Yeah, 20 probably years? ten years. I mean, I, yeah, until. I mean, you weren't like thirty years old going home to no. tigers, yeah. I think when the house burned down in 96 is when it really started drawing up. So from, you know, age 10 to 18 or 16, somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, he still breeds a, a lot of animals and raises them. But he, he, well, not, he, not to that extent, not that to that craziness. And a lot of right. laws have changed. Um, so that's. Right. Well, that's, uh, yeah, the times have changed, times right? Have changed. And restrictions and things like that. But that's just amazing. And then I know that he was real big into breeding what type of dogs? Plot hounds. Plot? Yeah. And tree and what? walkers. We've, we always had dogs. My entire life, we've had dogs and horses. And it varies from that to parakeets and zebras and lions. So 
Yeah, and he got some award recently, right, for his dog breeding, I mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. But, um, that's amazing. So tell us the scariest thing that ever happened <laughs> growing up there. I mean, there had to be. These were, like, supposed to be wild animals. There had to be. And even if, you know, you build them this beautiful cage to live in and they're happy and you feed them and all that, there's got to be some times oh, that... Oh, there's a lot of mean mean kitties around there, and I almost got ate one time. I had a... I like how you say eight, not I almost got attacked or anything. You almost got eight. <laughs> um, I was getting the geese out from behind the, it's some mountain lions in the barn in the, some kennels or cages and the geese got back behind them and I didn't want the geese to get eaten and I went back there and a mountain lion pulled his uh, paws through the cage and grabbed me by the hips and pulled me up against the cage and ripped my brand new dang pants and was trying to bite me in the butt. I turned around, I punched him in the nose, and he let go. And then another time, we were shoveling crap out of the lion cage, and they had figured out how to lift the uh, the guillotine door, and this lioness was about halfway out this door and had me in her sights. And I had my back to her, and luckily my brother saw it happening and grabbed me by my collar and jerked me out the the door and slammed it and then she hit the cage bam just that was a kind of a scary moment but I mean, we went to bed every night listening to the lions roar and waking up every morning with lions roaring my dad's phone was always ringing with the neighbors calling saying your lions are out your lions are out but it just depends on which way the wind was blowing it was so loud it would literally like rattle the pane the glass panes in the, in the windows just i mean they were literally right outside our door wow I bet your dad was not a, a neighborhood favorite. Yeah, no, he's still not. Still not. <laughs> With the hounds barking, yeah, he's 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 still not. Um, and we, you know, there's a story I have. It's funny. Uh, he used to bottle raise a lot of stuff because it needed to be gentle to go into a zoo or into a smaller, you know, breeding facility or be shipped overseas. And one rainy, cold December night. Um, the wife he had at the time took me with her and we were supposed to go check for I think Oryx or Addix calves. Can't remember one of the two, which are very defensive mothers. And I'm on the back of the flatbed truck and I've got my, my hand-me-down red coat that was my sister's. And I'm, my job is to get attention from the Oryx female and she's trying to position the truck to, to grab the calf and she gets the calf in the truck and then drops the clutch. And of course I fall face down in the dirt and wait and, jump up and I left my coat because I ran up a tree and it was right at dark. And Did I, she not know you fell off? No. Oh my she goodness. wasn't very much of a loving step monster. So a few hours go by and late, like everybody eats dinner and kind of going down for the night. And my That dad, is absolutely insane. She didn't say, oh, I lost Trapper. I took him out there with me and I didn't bring him back. Well, I was one for disappearing a lot, so. Oh, she probably thought you were just misbehaving. Uh, anyway, so my dad was like, anybody seeing Trapper lately? And I think she was like, well, I, th- I thought he was with me when I came in and blah, 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 blah. So then like midnight, one o'clock, my dad's driving around out there looking for me. And this, I think it was an addict's female had literally was circling the tree and would not let me down. And I, all I could just see in the moonlight was my little red coat down there. And it's like, it's cold and sleeting and raining. And I want my little red coat. I want my red coat because I'm like teeth chattering. Finally, my dad comes and finds me and I'm screaming. 
And he comes over there with the rattling old Chevrolet pickup, and he's like, what are you doing up there? I'm like, she left me. He's like, who left you? I'm like, your damn wife left me. Anyway, so he was actually mad at me for that one. But So I made it back to the house, got warmed up, survived. Wow. So this is all happening, like, basically through, like, age 10-ish, right? Yeah. Maybe six, a little eight, bit older, ten, but yeah. kind of the first decade of I think, your life. I think they got married when I was 10. My first decade of life, I don't remember a lot about other than I think I killed my first deer when I was five or six. And I killed my first buck at the Wild Ranch when I was about seven with my dad. And I remember I did, all I wanted was an axis buck. I didn't want a whitetail buck. And he Why? Was, I, I loved them a lot more. than They were so much more pretty. And we had whitetail everywhere. I wanted a big axis. And... He wouldn't let me shoot a big axis. I shot this old, wore-out 10-point. I actually still have that on the wall because somehow I got lost in a taxidermy shop between then and the house the house burning down. And so it's the first deer I have is still on my wall. It's an old, ugly, beat-up 10 from the Wild Ranch. It still has the Wild Ranch sticker on its horns. Really? Anyway, yeah. Interesting. Yep. So that is Trapper Burkett, decade one. <laughs> And then I have, uh, I think the next deer I killed was a, an eight point in an oat field. And I built, a, my dad helped me build like a cedar post blind in the corner of this oat field. I had my little 223 and it was right at dark and I shot this deer. And I, man, at that time I thought it was the biggest deer I've ever seen. And I was walking out there to him, no flashlight, no nothing. And he gets up to run off and I jump on him and I'm just like holding him. And we're wrestling around there, and he's wounded, and I'm trying to reach for my little Henry pocket knife to <laughs> slit his throat or something. And luckily, I see my dad's headlights bouncing through the woods, coming to pick me up at dark. And he goes to the blind looking for me, and he's hollering for me. And I'm like, Dad, Dad, Dad. And finally, he points the headlights out in the field, and he said, I was out there with this deer in a headlock just trying to hold on for dear life until he could get to me. <laughs> he comes and shoots him with this twenty two. And uh, he's like, why didn't you let go? I said, well, I thought it was the biggest deer I'd ever seen. I didn't want to let go of it. Was it the biggest deer you'd no, ever seen? No, it wasn't the biggest <laughs> deer I've ever seen. But at the time, it was. I think you mentioned that on a podcast. I mean, it's... We talked about being patient and watching. Yeah, I mean, when you're little, and I, you know, I look at these kids now, and they shoot a little deer. I'm like, oh, why'd you shoot that little deer? But then I, I got to remember, like, when I was at age, like, any buck you saw was big. And it's, yeah. I mean, that's what I love about hunting and taking kids hunting, it's like, it, there's no better high. Yeah, that's They so can true. play video games every all day long and win a million points on video games. But when they get so excited about shooting a deer and they're like shaking and crying and like uncontrollably, like don't even know why. That's how you know hunting is genetically ingrained in our souls. The passion for it is inside of everybody. And hunting is the biggest conservation tool we have. Definitely agree with that. I know my my nephew, Brantley, is four. When you said you shot your first deer at five, I was thinking, hmm, I'm going to have to get him on. I'm sure his dad will, for sure. Oh, He's already got him shoot, trying to shoot a bow and arrow. And I, gosh, I got home the other day, and he, or I went to visit them, and he said something like, um, what are the different, what's the actual one called, a broad point? Broadhead. Broadhead. And then 
what are the other field tips points. called? Field, field points. points. So yeah, so he's like, Mimi, come shoot my bow and arrow with me. I was like, okay. And he's like, and I don't have to use field points. I can use a broadhead now because I've practiced and I'm very safe. I hope they're dull. And I was like, oh my gosh. And he literally, he's like, it's that one right there. And he pointed to it. He knew where it all was and everything. And he got his little bow and he had his little box, which was from that y'all used to ship fish from Alaska. Uh-huh. Yeah. He had it like stood up and he was like, yes, and I get to use a broad point because blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my, or broadhead because, and I was like, the terminology and he was so excited. But it's things like that that I just think are so cool. You know, he was outside playing. And so to your point, I do think that once kids are introduced to that, and it's hard, right, because some parents don't know how to introduce their kids to that or teach their kids about hunting. Correct. You know, and I think that. Or they don't know. And I I don't think it needs to start with hunting. I think you could start with fishing. And go from there. Yeah, fishing's a little more um, manageable, I mm-hmm. think, to like get into because you can go so my, off of. My granddad was a big bird hunter and not not much of a big game hunter. And uh, I remember he taught me how to dove hunt at an early age, eight or nine. And he bought me my first little twenty-two. My brother and I, we had, we had, my brother and I had to share everything. Hunter, Hunter and I had to share everything. There was never two of anything. It was like, like here's this, and y'all y'all take turns. Other than we got some bikes for Christmas one year. We didn't share those. So it was a Klein Gunther 22, and that was out of New Braunfels. They were a great gun maker way back when, and really popular. little bolt action, single shot, 22. And I remember he would give my brother five bullets, and he'd give me, like, five bullets. And he would start this little game. He would see, like, if we had any left over the next weekend when he came back to the ranch. Because he knew if he got, gave us a box of, like, 50, we'd shoot all of them. Oh, yeah. So he just, like, kind of doled them out a little bit at a time until we could show him on a target or, like, on a on a can or something that we were getting better. Then he'd give, like, 10 to each of us. And he'd give us, like, a fresh target. He'd be like, okay, I want to see all 10 shots inside that target. Then maybe next week I'll give you 12. <laughs> so it inherently just made you a better shot. Right. And then when I got to that point, I was like, I want to kill everything. <laughs> you know? And then my granddad was like, well, anything you shoot, you have to eat. And so I was like, okay. So I shot squirrels and armadillos. And Ew, you ate an armadillo? Yeah, they're not bad. Oh. I'll show you how to cook I'll take one your, one time. I'll take your word for no, it. No, I'll cook one for you one time. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> um, coons, uh, which is kind of greasy. But yeah, everything. And Why in the world would you eat a coon? The Louisiana the, 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 eat them. The Louisiana guys eat them all the time. They call them chicken of the tree. Hmm. I've douse. skinned a coon before. Well, congratulations. Like on my own. It was not very much fun. It was a lot of work, and it was a little coon. I paid for my first car with coon skins. Hmm. You're probably a lot faster than I was. Oh, I was, but then... We got lucky where they would take them whole because they would take the meat and feed it to gators, hmm. the alligator farms in Louisiana. So, Segner's Pecans in Fredericksburg, Texas would buy whole coons. So, they had a buyer come like once a month. And I had a big old deep freeze my granddad had at the ranch. And one Christmas, I think I was mm, teenager, maybe, I wanted a coon hound. So bad. We had hog dogs. We had bird dogs. We had all kinds of other dogs. I wanted a coon hound. 
And I jumped up and down and begged and begged and begged. And I had told my dad, I said, I got enough money to buy my own Coonhound. I just want a good Coonhound. And one Christmas, my dad had gotten an awesome Coonhound out of Illinois. And he was a, um English Coonhound. English, yeah, English Coonhound. He was a blue tick color with red tick points. And I named him Rigby. And that dog and I went coon hunting every night. You sound like I just <laughs> I just got this image of you and your dog, like at, at the end of a movie scene. Just <laughs> he was going in out my sister's hunting. wedding. No way, really. Yeah, I put a tuxedo vest on him, and he was in Jane's wedding when she married. I'm gonna Stu. remind you of that next time I try to put something on our dogs. Ooh, don't do that. <laughs> so this this dog and I we hunted coons every night, whether I wanted to or not. And he'd end up across the county sometimes but we lived together i mean and he was only maybe one or two and the house burned down and he busted a window to get out and that next all through like early high school through high school that dog went everywhere i went he did everything i did and the one night we we set out on a drizzly sleeting rainy cold night somewhere around christmas and my brother and my dad had to come out and find me. They they finally found me at daylight, and they said the only way they found me is when they were driving down the pasture roads, and I even got caught over in the neighbors, and we killed the what we called the bear coon. Uh, we'd seen him, and we'd lost him a couple times, but this coon was the biggest coon ever killed in the county that we know to date. And I was out of bullets for my twenty-two Derringer, and my dog was wore out, and I'm on my hands and knees with my dog fighting this coon with the stick trying to beat this coon dead and my brother and my dad pull up and it's breaking daylight and they could hear my my hound dog howling but i want to say we caught 18 or 20 coons that night just me and that dog and my rule with the coon is i'd just knock him out of the tree let the dog have him because he worked for him and if i crawled up that tree and that coon started back down that tree i'd pull that little derringer out of my coveralls and i'd shoot him in the head Anyway, we had coons scattered out all down these pasture roads, and my dad and my brother were driving there trying to find me, and they were pick, picking up coons the whole way. And they found me out there, and I was, man, I was wore out. That dog and I was wore out. We got home, got a drink of water, and we, I think we curled up and went to bed. I don't think we got up all day. I hear Chief in the background like, shit, he must hear all this coon talk. My other dog. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm going to be the bearer of bad news because I'm sure everyone is now super enthralled in your story, but we're going to end here about decade one and we're going to come back another episode to start decade two, three, kind of get more into your hunting and trapping and catching and all that. If that's all right with you. Yeah. I think everyone's done with their six pack. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you better get on the whiskey now, boys. I think decade one was I mean, I had tree forts built everywhere. I I didn't, they couldn't keep me at home. They couldn't keep clothes on me. I ran around. I still can't keep you at home. You do keep clothes on though. Yeah. (laughs) I ran around like a little Indian. I would get home from school. I'd I'd take off. I mean, I'd I'd skip school for four or five days. I mean, we had a parrot that said, his saying was Trapper did it because everything got blamed on me in the house. And I'll just sum it up with, I got beat a lot for stuff I didn't do. And I would pack me some dried sausage and some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I would just disappear. And I had I'd hide out in the pasture, and I just 
I just lived it. I'd, I'd go hunt and I'd go fish and take my dog with me. And my dad was always hunting me and I just never wanted to be home and never be in a schoolroom. Well, you were an outdoorsman <laughs> from an early age. All right. Well, everybody go ahead and digest that whole story <laughs> from the, from the coons to the lions to the tigers and the, what else did we cover? Who even knows? I don't know. Probably not all of it. The Burkett Pecan. <laughs> we will be back next week with, uh, talking a little bit about as you kind of get in your teenage years and I know you've got some cool hunting stories and, um, kind of get into your guide experience because all this, like you said, all this backstory kind of lends to mm. why you are so good at what you do now and that sort of thing. So try to be plus yeah. it's entertaining. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, all right, we will see y'all next week. Take care guys. <laughs>